0: All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Thanks. How are things
1: yeah things are things are good yes uh, it's been a an interesting time coming off the back of the you know last year being such a strange year to suddenly everything here seems to be opening up again a bit a bit more and people seem to be doing stuff a bit more now
0: oh that's good yeah, how's everything we, uh, yeah we we we're opening up pretty fast Even though, like, there's still like there's parts of the United States. Well, they're mostly like the conservative parts of the United States that are still like COVID heavy. Mm -hmm. But in New York, we seem to be doing well, and uh, we're opening back up pretty fast and pretty hard. (laughs) So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I feel like the similar sort of situation here. It's just very quickly everything seems to be changing. There's a part of me though that kind of misses the. I feel like um when you're sort of like trapped in a way you can sometimes be forced to deal with yourself and sometimes some good sort of artistic stuff can come from that. So I miss that aspect, but I also, obviously it's nice to be able to actually meet up with people again and do stuff properly.
0: Yeah. I, uh, you know, honestly, like, I don't think fractals would have been the same had I been in more contact with people. (laughs) Is it such an insular vibe?
1: Yeah. And it comes across. I mean, I was thinking, I was thinking about that. I was thinking it's interesting how you've met, and impressive really that you managed to kind of with the restrictions kind of turn that into you know the 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 whole kind of feeling of the film is that kind of you know sort of handheld almost you know just going with it in very naturalistic kind of outcome which i feel probably i i mean i don't know how you had it planned initially but i'd imagine that it had some part to do with the fact that you had that limitation of
0: yeah you know, well the handheld look so I love that look, and I've been trying to make it work uh, for my own aesthetic for years, like more than twenty years at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and more and more, it's starting to fit into what I do. Um, I, th- I, it doesn't work for everything I do, but it's gotten to a point where like I've had clients who recognize my work simply by the way i that hold the camera like it's super weird getting an email from a client like hey i saw this thing in an ad and i think you might have shot it i'm like yeah i did shoot (laughs) i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because i don't use like steady cams or glide cams or like everything is is just natural as much as possible and i think that kind of goes that feeds into sort of that vibe you were just describing but also like when we first started shooting the movie, it was a different cast and nothing got locked down. We weren't sure what was happening mm-hmm. in China. We shot for four days and it looked more like a mainstream movie. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't shown you any of that footage, but it looked That'd be very like, interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll probably put it up as a special feature at some point, but hold on. I'm getting a zoom notification that we're supposed to sure. talk. Um, but like, the lighting was better. It was cleaner. Um, I took a mm. lot more time, kind of, you know, the highlights and all the background lighting. And mm-hmm. It just looked like a movie, whereas yeah, mine yeah. looks like an art house film at this point. <laughs> and so yeah. it's just like what you would expect to see from, I don't know, a three hundred thousand dollar feature film versus a no budget film, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically the difference. It's but an there's... it's an
1: interesting one. I feel like with the um, talking about when you're saying about the difference between like ha- how people can pick up your style. Or, do you ever find that maybe a bit of that comes from your origins? Because I remember when we worked, the first thing that we did together was, uh, i forgot forgotten what it was called, but that the film you did, I think, when you were 19.
0: Yeah, so I'll, I'll give some context to the listeners. So I met Scott because I hired him to do some visual effect shots, actually. Uh, for the restoration of my short film, Hero for a Day.
1: How's it? Hero for uh, yeah,
0: Day. Hero for a Day was the first movie I made out of film school. It's very much a post 9 11 movie. It's very much rooted in uh, a young, naive, conspiratorial m- male mindset. I wouldn't say it's a great movie. At this point, it's a movie that I had to restore because all that raw footage has more meaning for me than the actual movie cuz i grew up with every single person in that movie and i grew up on that island where we shot and i don't live there anymore and i don't know those people anymore how they look now is nothing how i remember them so whenever i go back and i see them i'm like huh there's and then i'll i'll go back to new york for a few years and they'll always revert in my brain as being from the version how of they movie. were footage yeah yeah like i can't my brain won't update them and so i'm like i gotta archive this and the only way i'm gonna seriously archive this footage is is if i do a a full restoration of the movie Mm -hmm. also it was kind of a practice run for what's coming because i'm really into this idea of kind of taking all my old content and seeing what i can do with it as more of a side project yeah and so one of the things that we never did with that movie is we didn't do proper visual effects. So you know I, I went online. I found you. You helped yeah. me with some of the visual effects. And then I found out you're a, you're a sound mixer. You have an ear for music and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And I don't. So I'm like, all right, why don't I why don't hire you to do this as well? Because I wouldn't mind having a proper sound design too. And everything that I couldn't do when I first made the movie, I wanted to do for this. And you were kind of instrumental in actually giving me that capability. So that's, oh, that, that's how we met. I, I got a camera over here. I'm going to occasionally talk to you. That's how we met, everybody. Sure. Um, <laughs> and so going back to the shooting style, the shooting style is really, it's out of necessity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I can't afford insurance for permits. In the United States, that's a massive hustle mm-hmm. to the point where it's kind of dodgy, right? To get a, to get a permit in any town, you need at least a million dollar insurance policy to shoot anything. The moment you put tripod down, you're at risk of getting fined. So everything gets handheld, no matter what, no matter how small or large we are. And in New York, even though you can legally use a tripod, there are certain security and NYPD people from the 9-11 era who just don't give a shit. If you're filming, a potential terrorist. So I just, I rooted my whole aesthetic and just handheld. The only time you see it tripoded is if we were in an open space where there aren't a lot of infrastructure. Yeah. Or in the basement, <laughs> all that basement
1: footage. It's interesting because I feel like, because um, I I sort of make films here and there when, I have, when I'm not working on other stuff. And it's funny because when we did The Hero for a Day... one thing that really made me like keen to kind of take the project on because at that point and even with fractals i'd gotten to a point where i sort of decided externally only to work on stuff that i actually you know not just for financial reasons but going on is this something i would like to be a part of um and it's interesting because hero for a day really reminded me of a lot of the films that me and my brother would make when i was a bit younger and we in that whole kind of you know getting old camcorders and just going out and filming um and i just in that i just really could relate to kind of what you're doing it's funny because i did we did a film back in like you know when i I think i was 10 and my brother was 12 and it was kind of a similar premise as all the sort of friends we had at the time in this film and when i a few years back i decided oh i want to try and add vfx and all this and i actually never finished with that but as soon as you kind of explained the project i just instantly was oh i understand exactly where this is you know what what the intention is here. And so from that, I kind of felt, you know, a real understanding and a desire to kind of work on it. And obviously that led on to, to Fractals. But no, it yeah. makes a lot of sense with the handheld as well. Saying so it can be tough here as well what filming. You know, you have to pay a lot of money and you have to, you know, clear it. And we, we've had it in the last few years, shoots where, you know, police have shown up or, you know, it's gotten a bit, risky especially if using certain props and stuff but but i can imagine in new york as well especially it must be you know a real challenge
0: yeah i mean i I remember uh back in 2013 i had this disaster shoot it's the only union shoot i ever directed and we had the proper permits Mm -hmm. and and it was for a night shoot it was in a relatively deserted area, though there were houses on the end that if they looked, they could see us, but we weren't intrusive. Mm-hmm. But they kept calling the fire department on us just to fuck with us, just to slow us down. And so to mess our out. permit was a hard out at 11 p.m. And we barely made the deadline because of that. And, you know, I ended up writing writing to all the houses on that block later you know to anonymous whoever lives here just so you know we could have been out in like 30 minutes had you just yeah. not slowed us down but it took three hours because of this just to let you guys know in case you do it to someone else
1: <laughs> it's crazy how people can oppose to it as well like it's like we went the, just before Christmas just when there was a, a brief window where it wasn't a lockdown here and you could just kind of do stuff outdoors me and a friend decided to do he was, work, he was directing a film and I was doing some acting in it and um and we went just on this road and it was very quiet late at night. And this one guy drives up the road and he starts saying, what are you doing here? You know, when are you going? And obviously we were polite about it, but some people, they're just really there, but it could be a nightmare with, with permits as well. I remember once we were doing a music video, um, for, because aside from films, me and my brother are in a band as well that we have, and we were doing the video for it with, and a friend was helping us shoot it. And we were doing something a bit daring where basically he was in the back of, you know, I guess what, it was the trunk of the car kind of driving with it open. Someone's grabbing hold of him, trying to get like the shot of this other car. Then <laughs> we got a permit, obviously not to do that, but the film on the road, but it turned out we booked the wrong road and there wasn't enough time to change it. So we just had to like go in and say, hopefully we don't get arrested. Luckily it was okay, but I was a close shave. Yeah, um, I've
0: done that shit too. We're like, the, the area I want, may I might not be able to get a permit for for various reasons. Sometimes, in New York especially, so much of the property is co-managed by the city and a private organization. Right. So, the, the city won't issue a permit. So, I'll get a permit for like one block over and just sneak over to where I want to be and just be, oops. Yeah. You know, if I get caught, it's, oops, sorry guys, bye. And that yeah. helps, that also helps not having a large setup because, you know… The more you look like a tourist or something, the better. Um, like I I I I, such a an advocate for no budget like modes of operation. Even if you have a budget, just stay under the radar. Yeah, just try and do a show off. Just make the movie capture what you need to in your frame and call it a day.
1: (sighs) I always think of that. Is it twenty eight days later? The one where basically I think it's like Killian Murphy and they, they basically they shot it in London. And because they wanted the street clear, I don't know if they got a permit or not, but I think they just went at like five or like four in the morning and it looked, cause it was like a zombie movie and I think it was relatively low budget, but because they went so early, there was just no one around. And so it looks like they've paid and they've had all the streets cleared, but they were just shooting so early.
0: Was that Alex Garland who did that? He, he did um, the beach. Um,
1: I'm not sure actually. I think it was, um, I've I, forgotten the name.
0: I think I know what movie you're talking about. I think it's the guy who did The Beach. I don't know if you it's remember the, the
1: Beach. I don't remember. the. It's the, It stars, um, you know, Killian Murphy from the Peaky Blinders and, like, Inception. Mm. Um, I haven't actually seen it, but I've seen the clips of, you know, this, I, like.
0: I don't watch know. zombie movies, so. No, I'm not. I, I only know certain things based on people's resumes, so. Sure. <laughs> you just kind
1: of go, oh, pick things out
0: yeah Mo- moving forward with this story we we finished hero for a day for those yeah, interested yeah. it's not out yet by the time you see this podcast it still won't be out. It is scheduled to go live on YouTube in august uh-huh. of twenty twenty two because that's the twentieth anniversary of the making of that movie That was also the movie that got me to New York and I shot on many d v camcorders. For the first ten years I was here, mm-hmm. that whole that that whole thing you described, just getting together with a camcorder and going to make a movie, just like jumping
1: is, out and doing that. It.
0: That to me is the romance, and that and and that's I think that's why I'm obsessed with going back into this footage. And I've been doing it again with my first New York movie. Um, you've probably seen some of the posts.
1: I've seen some yeah. come up on YouTube. Yeah, there um, is a magic though. There really is. I feel with those older cameras. I even wonder if because I've tried shooting with like, you know, like good cameras, but in that style, and it just it's too clean. There's something about the charm I find of just this. Yeah, it's almost like black and white.
0: We shot fractals in 6K resolution on a Blackmagic, and I dirtied that shit up. I brought down the resolution to to 2K. I was adding all kinds of color passes on it just to make it a little more interesting because yeah, yeah. it's just it's so it's so crisp and clean but it's not necessarily gorgeous you know mm-hmm. it's it, it, or light or alive like there's a there's an aliveness to uh i don't know just analog
1: content. yeah yeah it's like the whole film versus digital in general where you kind of have that it's it's a it's a strange i mean i I always, I'd i worked with DV tapes when I uh, did like media uh, well it's called college here but it's not like college colleges in America it's like when you're sort of 16 to 18 kind of thing so just before you'd be at that age um, but we, we shot with uh, you know DV tapes then but when I was younger unfortunately it was just as DV had kind of started to go and it was turning into like SD cards because I was when we properly started like filming stuff I was I was 10 and I was I'm 21 now so this was sort of 2010 and so by then obviously DV had just started to to, to kind of fade off fade yeah. out but I wish I'd had more chance because it sang about as well the tapes like the way you like pop them in and
0: oh yeah you put so I've been doing it all night trying to I, I bought this really junky eBay, eBay camcorder which I had to return. But I've been putting them in, push it in, it takes it down, and then you put the clasp over it, and then it's in. Yeah, and it's a a massive process. (laughs) It's it's,
1: it's magical though.
0: (laughs) Have you shot on celluloid film yet?
1: Um, as in just like general film?
0: Yeah, film, film.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So we, me and my brother, like, I think it was just because we, we basically we we just always have creative projects. So we do, we have the band together and then we do films together and we're just about to start filming one now. But we, I think when I was, when he was about, when I was 14 and he was 16, we decided let's get super eight out and go. And we've now moved up to 16 millimeter. Oh, nice. um, Which is obviously pricey, but we, we, we're kind of reserving that for certain projects, but we're with a group of friends. We're doing a, we've been working on this big, documentary project that we're quite excited about since, since 2016 we started. Um, and that a lot of that is shot on film. So over the years we've just been kind of saving up and getting loads of rolls of super eight to kind of, you know, but that is a completely different experience than digital. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: And it's so like here it's, it's a little tough cause the only labs that can really process it well are the really professional labs. Right. So you have to have bank to use it. But I, um, when you're shooting, how where are you sending it to get developed? Intelli- so there's
1: actually there's actually loads in the UK, just loads of um, labs that have like really good scanners. So we use just one. I think it's like Two Brothers again or something that just. I think they're they're affiliated with Kodak, but they just like do it out of their house. But they have like a six K scanner, and it's 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 pricey, but it's not it's not over the top. Cause there are some in London that are way more because we're just yeah. we live just outside um but it's yeah there's there's loads of companies in in the uk that seem to do it um there's a few which are like the main ones but uh it's you can get like process paid so you, you buy it on their site and that includes the scanning and the developing so they they send it to you and then you just send it back with your order number and then you wait and it takes a while obviously but then you just get sent it on google drive and like 6k which is quite yeah. cool that's and obviously you get the film back.
0: Seems like you have more resources to, to keep using film than we do on this side of the pond. So that's nice.
1: There seems to be a revival at the moment. I see loads of uh, like ads and stuff using Super 8 and stuff at the moment. And I feel like yeah. in, since we got into it, there's been more and more. You yeah, know. it
0: started with Vimeo, I think, because there was this this filmmaker on Vimeo who had this idea of scanning a Super 8 positive in like 4K resolution, and people were like, "Holy moly!" I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's what film can do." Nobody thought yeah. of that until like 2016, <laughs> and so yeah, I think that's kind of what like got people thinking more about it, going back to it, and then um
1: and I feel I mean, like Star I rude, Wars, but, you know,
0: Star. Wars, I feel like
1: because oh, yeah. then when they decided, because obviously the the thing was they decided, and from my understanding, to shoot. The Force Awakens and the New was on film, not for the stylistic reason, but because of money, right? Because such a big franchise, if they shoot in digital, they're locked into you know, let's say eight K or whatever they shoot in. But with film, you know, in twenty years they can scan it at whatever quality they want, obviously. So I think f- from a financial standpoint, they said, well, if we shoot on film, we're going to be able to, you know, we don't have to remaster it years down the line. We can just keep rescanning it as long as we prever- preserve the film. And I feel like that sent like a domino reaction of just every major franchise film, like slowly moving to film for financial reasons as well. Yeah, it's
0: future-proofing. That's what what I always called it. Future-proofing. Yeah,
1: future-proofing it. Obviously, you have like, you know, the people like Tarantino and that obviously shoot on film because they love film, which is obviously a lot more. I appreciate that a lot more, but you can understand, you know.
0: I mean, if I had the backing that they have, I would shoot on film too. Yeah. In two, in two seconds. Uh, my, my favorite experience as an editor was editing 16 millimeter film on a flatbed table. Oh, literally wow. just cutting the film, taping it together. Then you're doing the same thing to the magnetic stock, which is also 16 millimeter. only it's audio, and it's made of metal. And you could get cut on it. It was great. And then you take this taped up, monstrosity to a lab and then they would take your negative and they would carefully just conform your negative they would cut your negative according to your edits and then they would have this special glue to like connect the negative together and then they'd put the negative through a process so that you were getting a print based off that negative and that was your final movie and i'm like that's that's an such an artistic crafty process and it's like it's,
1: you're using your hands. I mean, we've just we're recording a new album at the moment. We've we've decided to use a lot more tape. We've gone back to tape, and it's the same as like the equivalent of film because you. Also, it's weird because like we did a we did this uh, just like I was testing out the tape machine and I set, rigged it all up to go on separate. I've got an eight track and a four track, and I've decided I was do the eight track. We'll rig everything up, and I started recording onto tape and the performance got so much better because i just knew i've got one chance to do this. It's the same with film obviously you're like we've got to get it right mm-hmm. in this take. But it's crazy cuz digital, you know, video or film, obviously you have to have the space for it especially when you're shooting, you know, really high res, but you kind of are like oh, you know, i've i've got we've got so you know, we can do so many takes. It's it's not such an issue. But the thing about with film it's like okay, you got so much film, so much light, we've got to get it and we've got to get it now, you know. That pressure i think can it can be devastating, but it can also really, I think, encourage uh, like production. Yeah, as well. I was
0: actually recently after when we were kind of in the zone of fractals, where you were you were in the beginning of mixing. Uh, yeah. Before you got the music, I was actually on eBay looking at those old Nagra recorders with the quarter inch tape. Yeah, uh, yeah. And because I I'm like, I, I I wanted to see what it would take for me to actually start recording all my dialogue on Nagra nagra tape and those th- those things were down in price a few years ago now they're back up in price because people want them again
1: yeah yeah there was a whole tape revival with them um, like mac de and all these like indie musicians who started using quarter inch again and suddenly it went through the roof i remember a few years ago it was like 150 200 pounds and now they're like here they're like 850 quid just for like you know an eight track which is crazy it's the same kind of with film i feel like I feel like over the next few years, the more people, if, if it continues, you know, people to use it as kind of like a trend, I feel like it's going to shoot up even more for like film cameras and stuff.
0: Yeah. And and I'm actually okay with that. I think that there needs to be an analog normality
1: Mm -hmm. just so so that, that
0: like in the event that I'm ever funded for real, I, uh, I would totally go analog. I would go on film. I would go on Nagra tape. Mm -hmm. I would find a sound mixer who's a relic from the 90s who can just come and work that equipment. Yeah. And just do it analog. I'll digitally edit because, you know, in the end you got to make concessions. But I love the idea of just
1: capturing all
0: the raw material
1: on analog. Yeah, there's something about it, I think. And it's just, it's like knowing that it's like the light is hitting the film, you know, because it's it's obviously, you know, and I think digital in in all, you know, with audio or with film, it also, it provides so much convenience and it makes it so accessible to everyone, which I think is the pro. But I think what I find so fascinating is I would have thought, you know, with like, you know, film, like cameras becoming digital and audio becoming digital and kind of, with that, everything becoming a lot more affordable. When you look back at kind of the, you know, like cinema and music of the 70s and kind of the 80s a little bit, the, you know, 60s, 70s, there's such a golden era of kind of audio, you know, music as an art form, film as an art form, you kind of end up with this, you know, this this era where you think if only they had access to everything. And then now you think everyone can, everyone has such easy access, you know, someone could just, make a movie on their phone, make a song on their phone. And it's crazy that there isn't, I mean, there's so much stuff out there, but there isn't that much like, I mean, there's a lot, but there's not those gems I feel was as available as they were back then, as it seems. But I wonder if it's because you had to go through such a process to have something made, like to have a record made in the seventies, you know, you had to get signed, you had to go into a studio and use the tape or with a film, you know, I wonder if because of that pressure and that process, it had to be great.
0: Yeah, Well, you know, when it was less democratized as it is now, the people who were coming through either were coming through and creating stuff because they already had some level of resources Mm -hmm. uh, or this is all they focused on. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm reading a book by Jonas Mekis. Jonas Mekis was an experimental filmmaker who... um, came over to the United States uh, during World War II. His family was killed. And he, he became one of the founders of the Anthology Film Archives, which is a film museum here in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, in a non-COVID era, you would be able to just take your film there and screen it through their new filmmakers series. Like, it's a very accessible place and it's designed to be because it was founded by an outsider. Mm-hmm. And um, he... Based on what I read in his book, he had to focus all his energies on figuring out how to buy his first Bolex sixteen millimeter camera. He, he he talks about put his brother and himself put down like a several hundred dollar deposit. I think it was like three or four hundred dollars. And then they had to wait like a month to raise money to buy the rest of it. And then, then once they took the camera home, this this dude was so committed to mastering filmmaking that his diary entries are just full of i shot x amount of feet today and it and it was this this and this he's just going around the city kind of like what i do i just go around the city and i film he's like all right i saw x amount of feet on this day here's what happened and this happened at this time at this frame and you know like i mean he documented everything he shot and and i just think that's so cool and it's so committed and when, when it's less democratized and harder to access, that's the kinds of people you get. Sure, yeah. At the same time, we live in an era where pretty much anything goes. So you could have a whole channel of people reacting to things with their computer laptops facing them, and that counts as art in certain circles. But then you also have, a few years ago, there was a Sundance winner who shot his whole movie on an iPhone. It was the first mainstream movie to be shot in an iPhone entirely i don't know if you saw that movie It was called tangerine
1: mm, i'm not sure i saw one which was shot on the phone which was about some i think it was like some kind of someone es- escaping from a mental asylum or something but i don't think it was the first one to be shot
0: no this was like the first to like really get mainstream not- notoriety because mm-hmm. uh, it won sundance it's called tangerine and the guy went I've on to make a out. movie called the florida project actually right. this is a great great story is he shot his movie on an iPhone one Sundance, found backers for his next one. He's like, all right, let's shoot film. And so he shot the Florida project on film and it looks beautiful, but it's still clearly his movie, his aesthetic, his style. It's just a different medium.
1: And, and I love stories like that because you kind of, it, it really, because it, I feel like there's, there's this trap and obviously it's because everything is so consumer driven in today's world where it's kind of like oh, if you buy this camera, then you'll be able to make a good film. Or if you buy this you know, laptop or this sound desk, you'll be able to make good music. And I feel like because everyone it's so easy to escape into the gear, which obviously there's like you can geek out and there's like a fun element to that. And especially, you know, if you have a budget and you kind of have learned, you know, you you, you know what you're doing with it, then obviously that's like that can be such a great thing to do. But there's, there's this level, I feel, where people are starting out and you almost you almost feel paralyzed because you look around and you think, oh, I'm going to need this camera to make a good movie. I'm going to need this lighting. And it's kind of like, it's like, you know, as we're talking about going out of just a camcorder and filming, I feel like so many people think, oh, you know how, I mean, I've been, I've been trying to get more and more into acting and I've been talking to people and saying, oh, I just need something for my reel, something for my reel. And I'm thinking, obviously it helps to have like, you know, established projects in acting reels, but I'm thinking, you know, there's you can just, you know, get someone to hold a phone and just come up with a scene. And that's the be- beautiful thing about having access to all this stuff. Yeah. You know, you can just position the window right so you've got you've got some good lighting on you. And it's it's crazy that we live in a time where literally you can just get up and make something and just yes. and you know, a world where that, that can happen, where someone can just make a movie on their iPhone and then it can win at a film festival. I think it's just such a it just says what's possible, you know.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And man, you had me thinking about something else. I forget what it was. Um oh, that was the perfect like thing I wanted to un- oh yes. Yeah, so you you'd mentioned the phrase and this is this is a phrase I threw around a lot when I was young and I was naive and waiting for the right camera. Waiting yeah. for the big format so that I'm taken seriously or whatever whatever the excuses. My, my advice to filmmakers who are listening, because obviously I'm going to throw in tags so that filmmakers find this podcast episode. Sure. Don't wait, for the, don't wait to make your movie. Just make your fucking movie. Yeah. And, and, and the reason is I, did, I waited. I waited way too long, and all these great scripts that, that I can make now I'm no longer interested in. I wish I had yeah. just shot that stuff on mini-DV or something.
1: Because it's kind of like you can never fail, really, if you think about it. Because either it turns out how you want and you get a complete project, or you learn so much from it. Like, we had a shoot where I planned out, me and my brother had written this script. We're like, okay, it was like, and we, I used to mix sound for live gigs in this pub. Um, and we, we sort of, the guy who ran it said, okay, you can, you can stay overnight and like shoot. And we were like, this is a dream come true. So we, we go to this pub and we sort of, we spend, you know, I think it was like, into the early hours of the morning filming and then the guys I was shooting with just said the light's in shot like the the acting isn't feeling right which let's just quit and I I just wanted to say let's continue but I realised that even if that film never saw the light of day and never got finished what we'd learnt on that shoot was so much more valuable than having a a filmed kind of you know show off and that's the thing I feel like with any art with music or that in the moment it's like oh it's such a failure like I wanted to make this project it didn't make it out but you think but you, you get so much that it then can transfer to the next project that it's like you never lose with it, really.
0: Yeah, and, and that's part of the whole lifelong learning approach that I've adopted um, later than I should have. Uh, when I went back to school in my mid-30s, which wasn't that long ago, I, it was in mm-hmm. 2015, uh, I instantly just like I learned that phrase, lifelong learning, mm-hmm. and kind of instantly applied it. Like everything... Is taken seriously and everything is directed to be if not a product then at least something towards my being as a creator so mm-hmm. it will be out there but the most important thing of course is is to learn learn something to get me to the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing
1: and you, it travels with you isn't it as well you know?
0: absolutely and I found too that if I'm going through the motions, because you can make a movie just going through craft motions, Mm -hmm. but I get bored. Uh, If it's so formulaic and I know how it's going to be, I get bored. And there are things that I had potentially, that were potential um, archival projects or restoration projects that I just like, you know what, I'm not interested. They weren't that interesting when I made them and they're still not interesting because they were too safe. I didn't learn yeah, anything. Just, I didn't experiment. Yeah. So I don't know how, how had... helpful these stories will be to people, but
1: <laughs> I did just have a, for a few seconds there, it glitched. If I went quiet, I, I, yeah. I, I heard, I heard the, what you said you the, 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 the video. Yeah. Just in the last bit, but yeah. no, it's, it's, I think that's, and it's such an incredible message to share, I think, as well, because, you know, and I, I really like what you say about, you know, not sticking to the formula of things. I mean, even, it's funny because I used to be, with filming, I used to be, oh, you know, we're going to have this set up like this and that. And Although I've always, you know, kind of tried to just, you know, go with the flow of things. It was actually, when I started to get into acting, I started to, I started thinking, okay, how, how do I do this? And I started, you know, studying you know, acting teachers and stuff and reading loads of books and things. And, and it, you almost are looking for that formula. And I feel you can do this with all areas of art. We are like, okay, well, what does this person do? And you look at someone like a successful actor and you, you watch, you know, you can find yourself going down the rabbit hole of YouTube, trying to find out what's their method. And then you realize that there isn't one because every project is so comes with such unique challenges. But like, I remember the first thing, like I, I was acting in for a friend and to try and get to find the character was such a, it was, it, you know, I started off trying to use the formula that I had pictured it would, you know, would be needed. And then it, it went completely different way. And then eventually when I found it, I thought, okay, now I've got the formula. And then the next film we did, I thought, okay, well, I've got it. Cause I just do, what I did last time. And of course I found that, and obviously this then translated across to all other art forms, but it's kind of realizing that, you you know, you can't just play it safe because it doesn't, you know, every project has such unique challenges, but also you almost don't want to because if it was just a formula, it's almost like, well, why bother? Because it's just, you know, what the outcome is going to be, yeah. you know, it be the same every time. Um, but I think that's a really important message as well about, you know, just not following the formula and and being open-minded as well, I think.
0: Yeah, I see that sometimes with people who, spent more time on a professional set than making independent work where they have this, you know, there's checking off the boxes Yeah. Well, why are, and then like, and I would challenge them. I'd be like, well, why don't we do it this way? It seems more practical and more interesting, you know, and it baffles them that that's even a pot that certain things are a possibility like the black hole in fractals. Yeah. There's a sentient black hole. You were heavily involved in bringing that to life yeah. And in a normal production, that would be an After Effects in every shot. Yeah. It would No one in their right mind would make something like that practical. It would also probably be a little cooler the way it looks, right? Whereas I'm just like, you know what? Fuck After Effects. Let's I have it. access to it, but I don't want to use it. I want to use 20-ounce rock canvas and massives, massive amounts of acrylic black paint. That's going to be our black. hole. And if we use After Effects, it's to maybe clean it up for certain things here and there. And there were some people who like, I talked to prior to casting this thing who, who were so weirded out by that concept because it was so against what they would normally see on a film set.
1: Yeah. That Actually, was listening like, to one of you podcasts and they were talking about how like they couldn't put their finger on the the genre because it was like you know it's almost I think it was, they were to, it was talking about I can't remember which podcast I think it was with I'm not sure how it's pronounced either Avis or Avis you know Avis, uh, Avis yeah it was talking about um how it was almost like I couldn't figure out if it was almost like a cartoon and how to play the character but you know I, I was thinking about it made me think about the black hole and I was thinking what I really like is it kind of reminds me of a set you would see like if you went to the theater and you, you would, you'd have it all, you know, cause there's a craft in it. And I think, and obviously this is having worked in VFX to say, I prefer it not done with VFX obviously is, you know, is saying something, but I, I really think having it practical, it, it just gives it a unique element and, you know, it, it makes it, stylistically clear that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost seems boldable. So I, I wonder if it made it more interesting to, to, you know, to actually, for the actors to play off because that, you know, so yeah. often with VFX, you, it's, you haven't to, obviously, and that's the whole part, you know, imagination is such a big part of acting, but when you actually have like something to interact with in that way, I can imagine it's almost like a sort of theatrical performance on some level, because you, you kind of have that, you know, to enter, you know, to build a relationship with the kind of, the actual set around you which must have been quite nice i'd imagine
0: yeah definitely i mean i i would assume that from the actor's standpoint that that helped enormously but going back to your thing about how you're an effects person who prefers it this way <laughs> like no like this is my philosophy it, producers are going to do what they're going to do but nobody should really be leaning so heavily on visual effects to present something so important to that story yeah, unless yeah. you happen to be a guy who owns a visual effects place, and you're just looking to sell your services to Hollywood, <laughs> Star Wars. But I'm not <laughs> the owner of a visual effects company. I'm not selling my visual effects services because I don't have any. I'm selling Eric Norcross as a genre. <laughs> and that's basically. And, it.
1: and it's. So, I feel like it also it goes it also goes into the concept, and this is what so what's so strange is that. Just as fractals, as you approached me with fractals and said, you know, as a something you like to kind of help out with, was just the time where in my life I'd made this decision that instead of, I, I kind of had this this crossroads of, you know, the, whole, uh, the, the conflict between art and commerce, where I was kind of like, should I go down sort of an artistic path? And I know you can obviously, you can blend the, the two, but, you know, in a generalized standpoint, do I go down the artistic route where I follow... You know, expression and you know things that feel morally and you know ethically correct, or do I go down the route of? There's a lot of money that can be made from art, and obviously being younger and kind of like in that in that perspective of kind of oh, you know, everything's kind of new and who am I and all this. It's kind of like well, there's a real conflict for a minute, and I I just and I think I spoke to you briefly. I I during the lockdown I'd started up a company that that with a friend originally to fund a film, but we kind of got so we saw the possibilities financially and we kind of got so, you know, down that rabbit hole that I almost lost sight of the music and the the acting and the filmmaking. And then I, I, at one point I just said, look, I, I, this is, I, this isn't what I want to do. And I've got to go back to, you know, to art as opposed to, you know, commerce. And then fractals in that month, you approach with fractals, which is kind of this artistic battle between, you know, Artie wants to be an artist, but also, you know, there's this world that's always there, you know, shouting in his face saying how important money is and how he needs to make money and how it's not, you know, it's not measured as real success in such a commercial world. And I thought, what are the, you know, this is, it really spoke to me at that point because I was like, and that's why, that's one of the big things as well, taking it on. I was like, you know, this this project, you know, feels like something that I actually really can connect to the, the story and the message behind it. And I'm sure that's something you've encountered a lot is that battle between art and commerce. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've
0: And it, it's really, I mean, the, the, there's, there's a vibe to fractals that is not only rooted in sort of the, the self trying to negotiate, you know, pleasing mm-hmm. someone, but also trying to be satisfied with it. But there's also all that all that employment aspects of it, right?
1: Yeah, we're like the soul. One.
0: Yeah, the guy's getting his soul sucked, and that's him applying to jobs, and that's really rooted in. There's a couple of things. One, that whole idea of the black hole being the job portal. People will understand once they see the movie. The that came from this this snarky comment I made a couple of years ago, where where I was just. I I said to, to Jan, I just feel like with ZipRecruiter I'm dumping my my soul into a black hole, and it's just eating it, and and all this energy is getting put into making it the perfect fucking resume, the perfect representation of me, that I, that a resume is possibly capable of. I think resumes are terrible, in general. I think that they. To to boil a a person down to a piece of paper is the worst thing society has done yeah. to us, and or one of the worst things. And that's that was kind of the seed for like this idea of creating a sentient black hole. That's just, but then there's also the clients I have landed, the employment I have landed, who basically like, I can't tell you how many job listings I see for video and film people I just need a guy to produce videos for me I don't need a filmmaker I don't need a filmmaker basically they don't want
1: any personality they just want robotic video yeah Yeah.
0: they just want raw footage that is as I'm not going to say professional as possible because I think that's a loaded word but as a corporate soulless as possible Yeah, yeah corporate soulless yeah and I was just getting so disenchanted by that. And I don't want to be disenchanted. I don't want to feel like, like I want to be wise, but I don't want to be disenchanted. And that's the other thing too, is I see so many creative people in, in sort of their midlife area who never achieved what they set out to achieve creatively. Maybe they were a musician. Maybe they were a filmmaker. Maybe they were a photographer. Maybe they painted and because they kept giving in to all of these employment expectations with it, they never really created the work that got them to the level they wanted to be. Yeah. And sometimes it manifests in just quiet desperation. You can tell somebody's unhappy even though they're they're talented and they're not doing anything with that talent. Sometimes they're really bitter and angry. they they, they might see you filming and might be that person who's calling the police on you. Uh. That's very, a very real possibility that half the people we run into that are bitter about us creating are those people. Not all the time, mm. of course. Some people are just miserable in general. But I do think that a part of the philosophy that I discovered in the making of Fractals is absolutely people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, and that's why they're miserable. And that's true. what Artie, in the movie, is trying to avoid. He and it's doesn't funny want to it's... become that.
1: I feel like it's that it's the the hard the easier thing to do is to just you know to give in. I mean, I haven't always I started looking at stories of people like you know Tarantino, Kurt Cobain, like any you know just people you know from the past who kind of achieved almost what they set out to achieve. And the the one thing that I always found in common is that just they were so they never ever like caved, you know, because they, they must have felt you know these pressures of. Um, you know get a job do all this and it's funny listen to the stories I mean like Kurt Cobain I know that he sort of had like odd jobs here and there like janitor and stuff like this but he would literally stay at home and just put all that focus and energy because I almost have this belief now that you only in your lifetime have so much kind of what can become creative energy and I feel like you have to really focus it you know and the more you're able to channel into that thing that you're passionate about, the further you sort of push that train forward because I feel like and this was the whole thing of when we're doing this sort of company I'd find myself um you know and it's not that we're selling anything I disagreed with because obviously I think I mentioned it was stuff that you know like could kind of add film grain to like digital film and stuff like this or vfx stuff and and it was something which I you know I'd actually used in all this but i I'd find myself writing up a like, um, you know, like a, a description for it. Where it'd be like, you know, why you should buy this or this. And we, we'd watch these courses on kind of marketing. And I just, I never stopped to think, what am I doing here? Like, what what's the actual, like, what, you know, what's the point of all this? And it was just putting all this energy into kind of trying to get, you know, essentially what, although it can be blurred and obscured, essentially trying to kind of, you know, get other people's money. And then one day I thought, I don't know. I thought, like, you know, this just, all this energy, I thought that the last year, although, you know, financially, you can achieve something, all that energy could have been put into a film or an album or a song, you know, and I, th- I thought, it's funny how the more you kind of go with what the world tells you to do, the further away you get from what just feels right. And I think you're right. I think it, it, people, they, they oppress that feeling. They say, no, 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 I've got to do this. And obviously, uh, understandably, some people aren't in a situation where, it's, it's at all easy to have the freedom to create, obviously, and there's obviously financial pressures, but if you're able to get to a place where they're met and then have that extra energy to put into stuff, I feel like you're right. The people who kind of go down a, you know, a more kind of, shall we say, like cognitive route, who are artistically minded, it does almost build, I feel, and you do, you, do, I, you know, I've experienced as well, people who you can tell they're really bitter about something and it's usually... Because they know that it's just a, a constant reminder of their failure to achieve what they really wanted to achieve in life.
0: Yeah, this uh, this is uh, also like something that um, you, you reminded me of um, when you said the world doesn't want you to do what you're supposed to be doing or something like that, uh, paraphrasing you just now. It reminds me of um, prior to the pandemic, I was mm-hmm. uh, directing video for this guy, James Altucher, who is mm. an entrepreneur. He has a podcast for entrepreneurs who are interested in starting businesses and whatnot.
1: Oh, is that called? Uh, what's, what's the podcast called?
0: The James Altucher
1: Show. Oh, sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cause it's just named after him.
1: <laughs> I wonder <laughs> but, if I've seen that.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically on my resume at this point, and that's about it. I don't really put the clips out there because sure. it's his show. But yeah. um, he would talk about a little bit about how... Um, I mean, I don't know if he remembers talking about it because he talks a lot, and he doesn't always remember what he talks about. But <laughs> he he would talk a little bit about how, like, people don't care about what you should be doing or what you want to do for yourself. They just... You know, they want to figure out whether they're used, you're useful to them. And if you're not, you're not. And if you are, they try to keep you doing that same thing. Yeah. And it's just whether it's good for you or not. And in one of my favorite quotes from him, and I'm not going to do it justice because I don't really remember quotes word for word, was that. Th- this term, I don't know if you have this term over there, but here there's this phrase that is used, especially with young people called paying your dues. So you sure, gotta, yeah. you got to pay your dues before you can get the thing for you. You know? Um, I guess if you want to make professional films, you got to pay your dues by working a gr- as a grunt on a set or something like that, you know, yeah, pay your dues to get promoted. Um, Paying your dues is a load of shit, and it's it's the uh, the whole concept is designed to get free or cheap labor from young people
1: yes yeah, like yeah we like I think we say <laughs> there's one that we always say which is paid paid with experience is the one that I hear a lot here, which is like oh it pays experience yeah. or like you know work your way up kind of thing
0: I mean imagine the stuff that Neither of us would have created had we focused more on paying our dues. Fractals don't exist. Well, I got to go pay my dues now. I got to go work for somebody who doesn't value creativity. So fractals won't exist. Yeah. And you're next, you know, you probably wouldn't have the time to go back into analog recording and experiment with that because you're too busy paying your dues. It's true.
1: It's, it's a it's a really good point actually. I mean, I, I almost feel it always starts with school. I know there's obviously there's there is a difference in uh, school in the UK and the US slightly, but I've always found that my experience of school was that if you want to be an employee, or if you want to be you know in a you know like a, a high paying job, you know like a lawyer, doctor, it's it's so great. But I felt that if you wanted to be like an artist or an entrepreneur or anything kind of outside of that box, the education that I found that school was providing wasn't there. And it's funny cause I pretty mm-hmm. much dropped out of what I guess the equivalent is high school there. Here we call it secondary school. And it's, and I would just be at home learning after effects and like doing music. And it was, you know, it wasn't just, Oh, I'm not going to go to school. You know, I had, I had stuff going on and kind of, you know, a lot of time couldn't face going in, but it was funny because at the time it was like such a panic and everyone like, Oh, you know, my parents, everyone were like, Oh, you know, if you don't go to school, like you're not going to have any, anything. And it's kind of like, you'll never be able to get a job. You never do this. And it was like, and for a minute I believed it, you know, but then I, I'm so now I look back and I think if I'd, if I'd continued to really care, you know, about, and that's not to discourage people who want to go down that path, of course. But if, if if it's not, I don't think it's the path for everyone. And I think there's there's not many options if, if you don't fit into that category. Yeah, It's kind of like you're in the club or you're not. And it's kind of like, I now one of the best things I think I did was to focus on that stuff. Because it meant by the time that I was at that age of finishing school, I now had learned all this stuff about filmmaking, all this. And I was able to start, you know, taking these risks and creating... You know, I know that I would have been well into my late 20s before I started taking those risk had I paid more attention in school because it would have taken me longer to break free from it. But at the time, it seemed like such a, you know, like my whole world will end when I get past school because I just have nothing. And it turned out to be a complete lie.
0: School in general, this is my pet peeve with the whole cookie-cutter system of education. It's designed to turn out workers and not entrepreneurs. And I feel like a lot of people are falling through the cracks because of that. There's a lot of people with a great deal of potential who, if we rooted our whole education and here's how you start a business, here's how you hone a practice in that, God, so many people would be much more happier because they would have more quickly found what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Instead, the the system here is here's how to get a job here's how to type your resume here's how to yeah. appeal to someone how here's to how apply to, here's how to fit into an office environment if you don't fit in you're less likely to be hired because people want you to fit into their culture and it's just like you know, yeah like, yeah like, yeah i don't want that i never did and it's like I, how to
1: conform I, yeah like how to conform on every level
0: wear these really uncomfortable shoes that offer no support whatsoever because we have a dress code Here's what that yeah. dress code looks like.
1: And it's like, I, was, I love what, there's a quote from, is it Steve Wozniak, uh, you know, the co-founder of Apple. <laughs> and although obviously there's parts of his, you know, life which are kind of, you know, whatever. There's this one thing uh, really stuck out, which was, he said that the problem with school in his mind is that it tells you that if you don't have the same answer as everyone else, you're wrong. But in, like, when it comes to creating, you have to have a different answer than everyone else. And I think that summarizes so beautifully for me, the idea that, you know, in the test, if you don't all reach it the same way, that's wrong. But like when it comes to creating, it, it, the whole point is you're supposed to break out of the mold to, if you oh, really want to, you know. I mean, that's so how it's, it's true.
0: That's how we grow. That's how society grows. That's how civilization grows. And this this is coming full circle. This conversation because like it goes back to sort of invention and not ticking off what you know the craft or not appealing to the demands of a client because they just yeah. want non creative stuff. And and I don't know if you've heard this this sort of phrasing before, but I hear this from uh, some business consultants all the time. I'm, I know a, a few business consultants and they always say if you were to ask someone at the turn of the century what they needed most they would have said a faster horse so then you would have never had the car if you could breed a faster horse instead somebody thought outside the box said well why don't i make an engine put it inside a chassis and boom we have a new invention it's better than a horse you know it it, it it's not likely to die as soon as a horse will die or get exhausted, as soon as a horse will get exhausted. Yeah. So then hundred, not a hundred years later, but maybe 75 years later, what do you need most? I need better fuel consumption. Are you sure you don't want an electric car?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's like, true. <laughs> it's funny. I just, it's, it's, it, and it is that thing of full circle. Like I feel like you can go any area in life and apply the same logic of like, and that's, you know, I think, I think that's the thing is that I do wonder what the world would be like if, you know, if, if it was the other way around where like everyone was encouraged to kind of think outside the box, if that had become the new box, I don't know. But yeah I mean, I, even though this thing I saw Kanye West actually was talking about, which was how, what, why boxes, like he was saying, it's so interesting because we're, we're born in a hospital and then we're put into like a crib and then we're put into a, a house, then we put it into an office, then we put it into a coffin. And it's kind of like we just live a life of squares and boxes where metaphorically and literally <laughs> we're just living our life in like these boxes where everything like a hamster on a wheel. That is the Which most, most is-
0: English thing I've heard come out of your mouth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, but it's, 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 that's the thing I, you know, it's, and I feel like that's that's again, you know, going back to fractals, that was a, one of the, one of the kind of the big appeals. Cause before I did fractals, one of the last VFX jobs I did was on a, it was a, um, it was like a game, interactive game that became a movie. And it had like, you know, it was like a big budget. Well, so, you know, not big, big budget, but you know, like it had a, a fair budget and it had like actors from like star Wars and like Peaky Blinders and stuff in it. And it, they basically, what happened is they'd run out of budget. So they'd gone on Fiverr looking, you know, to try and, you know, cut. Cause they'd already overstretched the budget. Can we find someone that will, you know, do the last additional visual effects, yeah. you know, with, with a, you know, without charging too much. And obviously they came across me and I ended up doing this job. And I think it was, it was like one of those jobs where it's kind of like, you know, the pay isn't really for what it is, the pay is pretty poor, but it's a good experience and, you know, on the, I'll put it on my reel and all that. And the, 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 experience of working in that way of like, you know, here's the in and out folder and like, you know, the way it was with, um, how, and obviously I can't go into too many details and all that, but it's, it was one of those ones where everything was so organized as a project. And I was, you know, you feel just like not a person, you just feel like a tool of some, you know, someone else that just says do this, do that, and it was just yeah. it felt so dehumanizing. And it, that's not to say that I wasn't grateful for that that project, but I meant, and some people, you know, I I think could enjoy working that way. But for me, having not worked in that way before, it wasn't specific to this project, but just that the way that you know the visual effects industry can work on a bigger scale. It really made me think, oh, this isn't what I want to do. But I, I, it's interesting. I was I was. When I studied music production, um, they would, we had marketing lectures about music marketing. They were telling us about marketers' market to people depending on which side of the brain they use most. Apparently, it's like left and right side. And apparently, there's they put it into two different categories. I think it's cognitive and effective or something. And it's where if you're cognitive, let's say you were selling someone a camera. If you were cognitive, they'd say, this camera has this many, you know, this resolution has this input and they tell you all the information all the data and if you're effective they, they sell you on feeling as opposed to information so they'd say with this camera you can create this you know you can get this and it's funny because yeah. you can kind of look at any advert nowadays or sorry commercial it'd be and you can like work out who they're going for because like if it's like a gaming PC it'll be for a more cognitive audience so they'll have like these are the specs But then if it's like a Coke, a can of Coke, they might get more effective. How does it make you feel? What's the experience? And I feel like jobs are also the same. Like there's certain people who like working in that way of, I need, you know, I need it all ticked off. I need to know all the data. I need it like that. I need the statistics. And then there's people who say, just give me the kind of vibe of it, you know, just give me the feeling. And, you know, they sort of flow. And that's not to say that one is better than the other, because I think you need both. But I think it's an interesting thing to observe yeah kind of the difference
0: yeah I'm I'm thinking now about like this client I had he was very much going down the checklist kind of kind of guy and his store his expect his expectation of any story and all that and he hired me to edit this video for a tour bus company uh i'm sure you've seen in cities we have tour buses that take yeah. tourists around Come and then it ground. was a video that was meant to loop in the lobby of their building and mm-hmm. um i edited it for him told the story of new york city really nicely went from point a to point b to point c you know when you when you're in new york city The story is Broadway. So I went from Grand Central to Times Square all the way down Broadway, all the way to Battery Park. We can see the Statue of Liberty and then back up again. It's a great story. It's the history of New York. He comes back at me the day I won my first film festival award. Yeah. An award for storytelling. Essentially, any film festival award is an award for storytelling. It's like this sucks. You have no you have no semblance of story. You have no idea of story structure. I'm like, I was just so baffled. He owes me $1,000 for that job. And I think that he might have just been trying to skeeve out of that job. But he, he, he is an example of somebody who just, he, he's working this corporate position, going down this checklist of things. And because his idea of what the story of that bus ride should be didn't coincide with what I thought was a really wonderful interpretation for this video. I had no direction whatsoever. He just said, edit this thing so it can play in a loop. I'm like, all right. Any film student would probably just throw all that footage together in in any random order and call it a day, at least the ones I went to school with. I actually put thought into this. All right, you're coming into Grand Central. You're going to go over to Times Square first. Well, you're going to hit the library, then you're going to go to Times Square, and then you're going to go down Broadway. And as you go down Broadway, you'll see the Empire State Building, you'll see Madison Square Garden, you'll see the Flatiron District, so on and so forth. I put thought into that. That story. That's the story of New York. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the first street in New York was Broadway. And the reason it is is because it kind of goes alongside the Hudson River from the Battery all the way to Albany, New York, and upstate New York State. Like, I put thought into this fucking thing. And to, to be told that by this check mark making administrative asshole on the same day that I won my first film festival award says everything I need to know about these types of people.
1: That's the, it. It, I, it speaks. Yeah,
0: I, I can't negotiate it. Like I can't negotiate it professionally in my brain and being like, okay, this is like. I just get infuriated. It's not even and about especially... the money or the fact that he still owes me a thousand bucks. Like it's just like, how does how do people? not think this way and i do think once again we're coming full circle education all yeah. comes down to yeah, education yeah. <laughs> sorry i'm inter i interrupted you a little bit there but no 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 it's no, on not a fucking right. roll
1: <laughs> i could tell i could tell you were like you know riffing and i was like i gotta let this play out because i don't want to just jump in <laughs> prematurely but i no i, I it's the, i've i had the same because obviously i was using i decided to use Fiverr, didn't i because i and that's, I think, what we met through initially. Yeah, I wasn't going to um,
0: name it because I, I wasn't going to try to promote it because I didn't like how much money they were taking from you.
1: Yeah, they, I they were I've... like
0: taking money from me and you. It was twenty percent they were taking
1: from that's my end, which is like, like these... a lot. Yeah, and obviously they—they. They, to be fair, I mean, I—I I, I mean, we met through it, and like i have i gotten, I've met, I've met other collaborators through it, but I basically. I got really into just doing muzzle flash effects. I don't know why it was just a weird obsession where I just spent years doing muzzle flashes. That was and so the I was,
0: effect I hired you for.
1: Yeah, and so I thought, okay, <laughs> I and it was crazy. I put up, no one had had a job on there for muzzle flashes, and so I put up muzzle flashes. Within two days, there was like five other people doing it. So, I went, oh. but it basically got picked. It got picked by Fiverr's staff because no one else had, uh, was doing that in visual effects category. And as a result, I got loads of like um, short film. You know, it's such a in demand when you start filmmaking, one of the big things I think is running around with like mm-hmm. airsoft guns. And so I get loads of like requests for this. And, <laughs> and um that's actually how I got the the big interactive game was actually obviously like I say, I talked about earlier on, on Fiverr. But um the only reason I did it was because it suited um at that point in time, I didn't want to be fully in full-time employment, but on there you can accept or deny. So I'd sort of sit there and say, oh, okay, we've got these, you know, these job requests and I could kind of, you know, work when I needed to. But yeah, obviously in the end, I thought oh, like that, especially if it's like a bit, you know, a job where it's like hours and hours and like 20% to me just seemed be, like 10% I'd, I'd be like, okay, but like 20, I was like, that's like just a, yeah. a bit gonna
0: I guarantee you, t- I'm glad we tapered off that platform and that we're just negotiating behind the scenes, but like, it's going to get worse for people on there because yeah. if there's one thing I've learned about a lot of these apps and, and social media websites and whatnot, they always end up kicking their users to the curb. And we're seeing that now with um, mm-hmm. uh, OnlyFans, I think that's the name of it, where oh, they, yeah, yeah. they built their their brand off sex workers and now that they're raising outside funds they kicked all the sex workers to the curb and they are just promoting their celebrities that are on there and it's just like fucking youtube did that too like they built their platform off independent filmmakers i was yeah. going, i was one of the f- uh, first indie filmmakers up there and i can safely say that i had the first indie film trailer on youtube the year it was founded I nobody remember seeing was, this. Yeah, nobody the, nobody thought to do that. They were just putting up their home movies. I'm like, I'm going to put my trailer up. And we went viral. Like, it yeah, were yeah. the first indie film trailer on there to go viral. And I was a YouTube partner for a number of years. And then at a certain point, they're like, you know what? We don't want to pay the lower performing people, even though we're yeah. going to run ads on them. So they they ca- they, they did the cap at like 100,000 uh, subscribers. And, but, yeah, then, yeah. And then... Um, Amazon did it a few years after that. I, I actually made money off some of my short films through Amazon until they, the bean counters retooled how they pay people because they wanted to be able to pay celebrities more. Yeah. And all the people that built that platform, the, the no-budget independent filmmakers, got kicked to the curb. And Fiverr is going to do the same thing. So if you think 20% is a lot, it's going to get worse.
1: Yes, it and you know it's it, it all feeds in as well to the whole sort of social media age. I mean, I remember the year the Facebook became popular, kind of around where we lived. And it was about twenty ten, and this is probably not good, but I was being uh, ten years old at the time. I was, oh, I got to get Facebook, and I remember in those days, and obviously you'll remember like Facebook was, you know, you you literally see post in order of what's been posted recently so you like go on facebook and you see everything but it's like of all your friends what's most recent you know so you'd have 10 minutes ago an hour ago and then you'd have like maybe an ad on the side and then the rise of these algorithms i mean me and like so many people i know literally if i have i have accounts for promoting work like as in like you know if there's a song or something like that i haven't i have accounts but i actually i use the facebook business app to make posts just because i don't want to My brain hijacked by Instagram because I, I remember a a turning point in like 2013 where suddenly it's like we're going to show you infinitely, like you know, we're now going to start showing you exactly what we think you want to see and learning and, and that I think is so scary. I think it was the, one of the documentaries that came out last year, either the Social Dilemma or one of those, and they said a great thing about. How, uh, you know, technology should be like a tool and like a bike, you know, where you go to it when you need it and then you can use it as a tool. But when it's like so evasive that it's trying to constantly pull you in and take your time and obviously time translating to money or data or whatever it is, it, it becomes something else. And it's it's like even like a camera, right? Like a phone versus a camera. A camera's like, okay, I need to make a movie. I'm going to pick up the tool. I'm going to, you know, use it for the purpose I want, put the tool back down. But over phone, it's like so. You know, we're so sort of cybernetic, but it's just not like implants yet. It's it's just we hold it in our hand. Yeah. But it's crazy time, and YouTube obviously being the same because I remember YouTube when it was like that, and now it it's something very very different.
0: And it's hard for me to tell that story too because I still really believe in YouTube.
1: Me too. I, I mean, we're
0: gonna put this fucking thing on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that it is probably the best social media platform out there right now. Um, but yeah, that whole thing with Facebook filtering out your friends' posts to replace them with ads, that really, that kind of shit just gets under my skin. I can't negotiate what's going through people's minds when they think that that's a good idea. That's so bad for society yeah. and for people.
1: Yeah. And it makes you, you know, you just put out a few posts that a certain friend doesn't like and then they'll never see anything from you again. Or even like, I remember like when we started our band page in like 2014 or something, you we'd put out a post and the people who liked the page would see it. And it didn't say, you know, oh, you want it to be seen by the people who like it? You're going to have to pay to boost the post. But it's, you know, I remember at one point, like people like accounts like Justin Bieber and that, I would say them, but it's probably their teams running it, where they they literally would make their accounts a personal account. Because the moment you make an Instagram, or at least it used to be this way, the moment you had you would make a personal account into a business account or a creator account, it suddenly would lower your reach because they know that okay, now you're doing something that you might be able to pay to promote. And so I remember a period where all these like celebrity accounts were made personal accounts because they knew it'd reach more people. Yeah. But it's it shouldn't be that way in my opinion.
0: I agree. I agree. Yeah, my Instagram is actually an art, an official artist business account, but yeah, I have nothing to promote like through that. Like everybody, I'm trying to reach through that tends to end up acknowledging my posts. Yeah, so, yeah. And if they stop, then I'll assume the platform's dead, and then I won't use
1: it. <laughs> exactly. That, I feel like there was even, there was almost a sort of backtrack because I remember about 20, I'd say 2018 or just after. I mean. Instagram's changed a lot, but I remember a point where it started to go so, the reach started to really go down on sort of business accounts, at least in my experience. And then it, almost in recent years, when they, in the last sort of two years, when they added a lot more options for like creator accounts, it seems to now be a lot fairer in it. But like when we were doing, you know, the kind of business thing, we started looking into like running Facebook ads and stuff. And then seeing the back end of that platform and how precise you can target uh, a product to people, it was one of those things where it's kind of like at first, it's like, hey, that's that's cool, right? You can like, if someone wants this product, you can match them specifically. But then I thought, the more I like thought on it, I was like, hang on, wait, there's thing about that that doesn't sit right. The idea that most people using it aren't aware, and obviously now it's becoming more well-known, but aren't aware that, it's that, that saying, isn't it, that? if the product's free, you're usually the product. You know. Yeah.
0: No, that's and definitely that, true. Um, if they're not selling it to you, they're selling something on your back to someone yeah. Else. so
1: Yeah, it's absolutely. true. Absolutely. That's correct. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. You've been occasionally freezing, but I can still hear you. Like you, your audio feed's been perfect and consistent, but okay, sometimes cool. your video freezes.
1: It's really strange. I find this, I don't know if it's because of the, I don't, I wouldn't think it'd make a difference, but it's really weird because, you know, I'm in the room with like the internet and it seems to be a good connection. But I found last time, I wonder if it's something to do with the distance between us. But I, I don't, I think because it's the internet, it probably wouldn't make a difference. But
0: Yeah, I don't know. I know the infrastructure in my New York neighborhood is absolute shit. We're in one of the few neighborhoods in New York City that still has above ground lines.
1: Yeah. Oh, so they're okay.
0: always getting toppled over, and we got a storm coming in, so it could be on this end. Um, and that's
1: the, that's the other exciting thing, isn't it? The idea. I mean, I'm, I'm very, ho- I'm hoping to. I've been to New York once. I think I said on the other call, but I was, quite, I was a lot younger, and I'm. We have a plan where a big group of us, uh, my brother and some friends, we're going to go to New York for, and this this will depend on COVID and how everything goes, obviously, but. Mm-hmm probably next year come to new york for a few weeks but then we're going to go on to la for a couple of months hopefully obviously it depends on how long we're able to stay without like you know work visas and stuff but you know i there's something about it's funny something about new york that's always just been so charming to me and i remember going there like i slept it's odd because it's so it's such a loud city like the place you get but i slept better than i've ever slept because it was just something about knowing that like there's there's always like some kind of something going on. That I just really connected with, but there's, I really love, um, again, I don't know how, if you, I'm sure you've, you've seen, you know, Bird is it Birdman, the one with, um, yeah. Michael Keaton. And I, there's something about that that just really gives me that feeling that I had when I went to New York of just kind of like just the history of it but it must be so such an interesting place to be a filmmaker, like living in New York, because there's so much history of film and so much history of performance there. That must be such a, a like such luxury.
0: Yeah. There's, I mean, the, every art form is here. Yeah, so, yeah. And film started just across the river in New Jersey, the first film studio, uh, the film industry in general, uh, but, good you said something very interesting, and I don't hear it a lot, but it is absolutely true. It's so easy to sleep here, and yeah, that, and that's it really contrary is. to how it's often portrayed. Like you'll see these movies that oh, I'm going to New York for the first time, and then they can't sleep because some neighbor yeah, is the doing pillow some wrapped bullshit. over the head, yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and this is not true. Like I. I like two weekends ago we we Jan and I went up to the Hudson River Valley and slept among nature. We were in a mm-hmm. house, but you could hear all this noise that like the the locusts or I don't know if they're locusts, but there's mm-hmm. some sort of bug and and bird combo that just yeah. created this really horrible noise. I'm gonna put it on free sound because I recorded some of it. Yeah, um, yeah. And you can hear it. Um and, and just like, how do people sleep in the countryside with all this shit going on? And it's just like, this is literally what it sounded like. Sounds like I got to step back from my mic. <laughs> all fucking night, and I'm just like, I got to go back to the city. I need. I would rather have sirens
1: have, and the honking. Yeah. <laughs> the it's. Honking. Just, I mean, I remember when we when we stayed. We started off in the city and then we went up to Catskills you know like uh, up in the mountains and the the transition and it's even more notable I feel like in New York it's I, I just remember going from like oh sleeping really well to just suddenly like you say it's just yeah we were in and this, it's, it's in almost the whole- like I don't know I, I guess it's because it's like you hear humans and it's kind of like there's something not always but in, in that case I found it almost comforting but it's almost like I feel like it's like someone telling you a bedtime story in a weird way because it's like you know there's someone, you know. It's not like the world's stopping, but it's weird because, I mean, I live, I live out just outside of London, but I live in a city and or just just on the outskirts of a small like a smaller city, and so it's it's not like, I mean, it's not it's not it's not it's not New York level loud, but it's like or London even, but it's, um, you you know when I fall asleep, you can hear traffic and you can hear like, it's not like, you know, dead quiet, but it's weird. Like, cause we're like, we're going away, like say this on like a Monday um, as of when we're recording this, but that's going to be a weird adjustment. I just know it because it's, you think, Oh, peace, it'd be peace and quiet. But sometimes your brain's so used to it, it. It's actually so much louder when it's quieter in a weird way. And yeah, no, I, think- I know exactly what you mean.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned the Catskills too because that's where we were. We were in the foothills of the Catskill Mountains. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's like the same fucking area. Yeah. And yeah. Um, sometimes, I mean, I haven't slept a night in Maine, my home state of Maine, in a few years. But when I would go back to Maine after having lived in New York, there mm. were sounds that I never even like thought about that now kind of freak me out. Like, I don't know if you ever heard a, a fox like bark. but it's like Oh, a, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. It's like this horrific scream it was like all night they're doing that and I never thought about it growing up but I couldn't yeah. sleep in Maine anymore because of that
1: we get them here we get foxes like up our, like in on the road just on the road and we have ch- we, we keep chickens and they the fox is always after them but like it'll be like two in the morning and suddenly it starts screaming and my girlfriend will be like what is that what is that what is we, like, do we call the police is someone screaming it's like no no it's just the foxes but it's, I've always found it so fascinating, the interesting, the perception between people from the U.S. and people from the U.K. Like, one thing I find really weird is that like, there's almost like, I was listening to a podcast about it the other day. It's almost like a, the second British invasion. I feel like so many actors or, like, filmmakers, like, in American films are British. And I, I, don't, I don't, I still don't fully understand, like, why. Because there's so many things where, like, the lead actors are always British doing an American accent. Hmm.
0: We're trying to figure that out, too. Because that's the thing. Because there's a lot of talent here.
1: Yeah. You know, really. I mean, it's funny. Some of my favorite actors are American, you know? And that's.
0: It baffles me. I honestly don't know what it is. Uh, I mean, it could just be nepotistic bullshit, but I honestly don't know. Like, because I see that too. I see so many parts where I'm just like, why this dude? Why is this guy yeah. playing? There, what was it? Daniel Craig playing a guy from the South. He's done it like two or three times now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's on Knives Out. Really need to do that. Yeah, Knives Out. I mean, he was great yeah. in it. But yeah, but there's a thousand other actors who could also be great in it that actually do that accent genuinely.
1: Yeah, yeah. You
0: know, and um, I found oh, that weird. Uh,
1: yeah, no, I, I I heard a theory which was about. Because obviously the UK, everything being so much closer together. When I mean, this is the thing that is so crazy about like going to the US is the scale is just mad, It's crazy. Because like here, like you know, it's you can drive, you know, up to you know just around or up to Scotland or wherever. you know, it's it's you can cover the ground like be from one extreme to the other just with a, a sort of short drive. But in the US, everything is so far apart. And there's a the thing that they say is that. the the difference in British accents supposedly, and this is me quoting, by the way, this isn't my personal theory, but apparently something to do with the, the, the difference in British accents. So from like up North, like Liverpool, Manchester to then like London is so different and so extreme. They say that to, for a British actor to try and reach those accents is somehow training or something. I think it was, this was, a theory from, I think it was Charlie Hunnam, the one who played um, Jax Teller in Sons of Anarchy. And he was talking about how, because there was such a a, a difference between accents and British actors kind of are expected to do that, it's much easier to do the transition from British to American accent. Um, And there's always this thing of, they say that American actors can't do the British accent as well. It's weird. What's weird about that is I've heard some... So, to be fair, some American-British accents, you know straight away. But there are some that are crazy, like Elijah Wood in um, Lord of the Rings, for example. I had no idea. Like, there, are, there are some that just completely flaw me. But I'm, I'm sure it must be the same. Because this is what's weird. is we, I can't see when a British actor is doing a terrible American accent. Because obviously, I only know from films. But a lot of the time, that's British people doing impersonations anyway. Because at the moment, yeah. it seems to be flooded with that.
0: Some of them, some of them hide it well. Where like, if I didn't know they were British, I'm, I, I'm usually just like, whoa, whoa!" Um, and I know that that has happened, where like, there are people who, like the guy who played Doctor House, for example.
1: Oh, Hugh Laurie,
0: yeah, yeah. Hugh Laurie. I had no idea he was British because I only know him from House, and so I... when I saw him on on a late night show with Craig Kilborn or or one of those guys it was like holy shit and and i and the story i heard about him was that when he sent his audition tape one of the producers was like that's what we need a good old american guy guy <laughs> it's just like but then there are there's stuff like the daniel craig thing where it sounds cartoonish to me yeah yeah see but it I,
1: sounds the same here
0: but at the same time, he's putting on a Southern drawl. Yeah. And this Southern kind of... drawl also is cartoony in and of itself. Like, it's yeah, just, so I can't it's like hear a... it and then respect the person talking.
1: <laughs> it's funny because that's the one which everyone, like, well, at school or wherever, if you're kind of doing an American accent, like, in my experience, the one that everyone kind of does is the kind of the most approachable seems to be that kind of Southern girl. And then it's kind of the over-the-top California... You know accent and then it's kind of then it gets more subtle and then that's when i find that you get the good performances but what's crazy about house is and i actually have a funny story because my once my mum nearly <laughs> like ran over hugh Laurie with a bike <laughs> but um he was he and stephen fry they had a comedy show for a bit of Fry and Laurie, and he was in lots of british comedy stuff and it's crazy because and i obviously can't speak for every like for everyone but me and my friend's perception of Hugh Laurie was, oh, we just know him as like this British sort of comic actor, a bit like Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, where it's kind of just like this sort of small kind of local feeling. And it's funny because House has almost seen, or at least wasn't our sort of circle, is just kind of a secondary project he did, where it's just kind of like, <laughs> oh, he did that as well in, in the US, but he's like Fry from Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. But it's 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 so weird to think that like in how some people see house and are like, oh, I don't know who this guy is. Cause it's, and again, obviously I'm sure there's people in the UK who have had the same, but yeah, no, my, it was like probably the eighties, I think. But my mum was like cycling through London. He was like crossing over to a theater cause he was in this play. And she, she just like basically was, she, I think either she went too fast or he crossed too fast and then like nearly knocked him down. And then she's like, oh, I'm sorry. And then he was like, oh, it's okay. And she realized it was Hugh Laurie. <laughs> she was like, oh no. <laughs> so, Thank goodness she didn't because then Milty house, but I need to watch that still house I haven't seen that
0: it's uh yeah it's uh the first few seasons are pretty good uh you can tell the first season had a really low budget and a really like the camera footage you can tell is just like it's it was overly graded and not meant to be color graded like it was just like low resolution yeah, yeah. By definition video I know like and- like just it almost looked like a prosumer grade video but it was interesting to see like a mainstream tv show like looking that way yeah i don't know it's just like i always look at like footage and what it, you know i don't know if you if you remember like when when hd f- f- was you could record hd footage on mini dv tape with mm-hmm. certain cameras it looked kind of like that but where they just threw all this color grade at it and it didn't do it justice So some of it looks a little muddy and it's, it's just interesting to watch like as from an aesthetic standpoint.
1: It's a weird, it's a weird era as well because it's where I felt TV started to become in arguably a more important artistic. No, I don't mean like more important, but it almost started to overtake film in a way because film, I feel like in the early, like late two thousands, I feel like film just became so much more franchised and, and obviously there's been some great films and continue to be especially recently yeah. um, but I felt like you know there was the point where television just got really really good and I, I don't know I, if it was
0: I credit that to Lost
1: 100%. Was that? do you reckon that was the thing
0: I think Lost was the one that put television as like this this medium has the potential to take over film in terms of its serious ability to ability
1: tell. sure yeah. no I and, yeah, yeah. I remember everyone talking about that, and I feel like another for me it was Breaking Bad. I felt like that was oh. that was like okay, you can do that with television. Okay, yeah. <laughs> just setting new standard, and you know? that's just crazy. I mean,
0: I honestly don't think Breaking Bad would have would have been possible without you know the early years of HBO, the '90s, mm-hmm. going into Lost. I mean, Breaking Bad was a massive risk. You had this high school chemistry teacher becoming a meth kingpin over the course of six seasons. Yeah, yeah. How fabulous is that? Like, I'd greenlight it, but I'm also not a good business person and I don't work in the media. So it's just like to have somebody with the gonads to say, okay, I'd watch that, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I remember I was reading um, Brian Cranston's book and talking about, like, how precise they were about it as well like he said like they'd suggest oh maybe he should kill this person and the writers apparently they'd be like no 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 no, it's too soon because obviously you, it had to be such you know such a perfect formula of getting the audience to really really connect with this character that to the point where when he starts to break bad people start to like really question their morals so i think that's what's so interesting yeah. it's like you know, how long can the audience stay with him and justify his actions before you say, okay, that's like a step. And, you know, I've, I've, it's different from like, I talked to friends about it. And some of them are like, oh, as soon as he did this, I was out. And obviously, I'm not going spoil, to spoil it. But like, I've you know, See, I have a friend too. Like, yeah.
0: I mean, I, when I've watched that show from beginning to end twice with a huh. few episodes I'd revisit occasionally. And honestly, like with all the bullshit he put his family through, all the shit he put Jesse through, as soon as he killed all those guys at the end and died with a smile on his face in the environment that he loves the most, the lab, I was satisfied for him. I'm like, good for you. Like, (laughs) Like, like That's that's the story. That's the storytelling. And that's the brilliance of the people who made it is they really, they didn't follow the formula that most people would follow is... They made me appreciate this guy's goals and and fulfilling what he was missing in life so much that with all the bad shit he did to other people who didn't deserve it, I still rooted for him. To get what he wants yeah
1: it's it and that it's weird because you take a step back and you think if you had heard about his story in the news as a real story you'd be sick and you'd be like this oh, guy yeah. did what and then you think but that's what's so interesting about subjective versus objective reality but i mean i'm not ashamed to say i've probably watched i think f- the whole way through breaking bad about six times because i just every time the crazy thing is every time i watch it it gets better yeah it's really it's one of those ones for me but Yeah, no, I feel like nowadays there's such a... I mean, we went to... Me and my girlfriend went yesterday to see a a film, uh, Hugh Jackman. Uh, It's called Reminiscence or something, and it's about, like, it's just come out, but... Well, it's just come out here. I think it came out in the US last year, but I guess it probably didn't fully come out. But it's funny because it almost looked like it was... You know, some of the films recently we've seen, they almost look like television. And then we are watching... Some like the Peaky Blinders latest series, and some of the television looks like cinema, and it's, it's there's such a weird blurred line now where it's almost like, like Stranger Things, I think, was a great example where, you know, that is shot like some really high budget like eighties movie, yeah. and and but in like episodes, but then like films now, it's like there's this weird crossover happening right now. I, I think.
0: Yeah, I consider some of those Netflix shows films. They're just not being presented in the same medium. And that's kind of how I'm writing my own series is now is I'm thinking of them as films, but with limited episodes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great, that's actually a great example of taking something that exists and reinventing it and retooling how people interpret it. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of little things they did with stranger things to kind of make it seem different from the other. Like, yeah, um, I did. Uh, I recently did a process video for fractals about the two to one aspect ratio. I don't know if you caught that on YouTube.
1: Oh, I haven't but, watched that yet, but I have yeah. I did see it.
0: So they put their movie in a two to one aspect ratio, which is is it's becoming more common, but it's really not that common yet. And so when something is presented in two to one, already it stands out. and and looks a little bit more special and looks a little different. This is an event that I'm going to experience differently than everything else. There's just something about it. It's super, it's a super weird aspect ratio because it's, it's, it's not quite widescreen. It's not quite 16 by nine. It's not a square, but it's also kind of an even aspect ratio. It's two to one. It makes a lot of sense that, and it's all, and that very subtle decision, is having a lot, as' having a bigger effect on viewers than I think pe- people are giving it credit for.
1: It's and true, so- actually. I never thought about that. That's that's really clicked as you said that. I've just suddenly thought because you know, because it almost gives it that it's not stereotypical, but just that cinematic feel. You know, there's certain attributes to that kind of cinematic look that I feel like most people watching wouldn't be able to like put their finger on. But when it's missing, you just you somehow register that it's missing. Yeah, and it's I feel like that's quite- one of them.
0: It's not quite a movie, but it's also not quite TV. It's, it's, yeah, this, yeah. Weird, it's this weird upside down that yeah, we're in yeah. right now. And, it's true.
1: Uh, <laughs> and also, it all fits in because that's also, I think, a great example of, a, at least from my perception, of really someone who is English doing an American accent that I had no idea, which is, you know, um, Jonathan, I think it is, the one who goes out with Nancy.
0: Mm, I don't know the characters that well.
1: Sure, there's yeah. there's this one of the main characters in it is a British actor, and I had absolutely no clue. But it's it's not like over the over the top. But that I love also the fact that although you have obviously, you know, some some big names in the cast, it's not like big big. And the same with Breaking Bad. What I love about some of these TV shows is although like Brian Cranston had worked in in stuff previously, it's almost like it's Part of the beauty is that it's like their defining role, like this is their chance. And I feel like they almost, I don't know if this is true, but I always thought Breaking Bad, both Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston have been trying their whole careers to just have that breakthrough role. And because they kind of both knew it was it, I wonder if that meant they just gave it, you know, everything. And that was part of why that performance was just so incredible.
0: Well, hopefully we can ask them at some point. I wouldn't mind talking to them on here. Because I am curious yeah. about that because for so many in my generation he was the dad in Malcolm in the Middle.
1: Yeah, of course, yeah. And
0: that to me, all right, that's the guy. I didn't know his name was Brian Cranston. He was his Malcolm's dad and he was weird. Yeah. Weird as balls. And then this thing and for a while I didn't put the two together. They were completely different people. Yeah. And now Breaking Bad is Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston is Breaking Bad just as Aaron Paul is Breaking Bad. Whatever Aaron Paul does, he's always Breaking Bad.
1: Yeah, and it's like
0: that to me, and and it could be bad, like it, it could be a terrible show, and that's a bad thing. But in this case, it's a great thing for both of them.
1: Yeah, it's, it, and it's it's almost like one of those things where it's like typecasting as well, where it's like, you know, it's like it's one of those roles where once you've done that, that's just always what you remember for. Like we saw um, Your Honor recently, the one Brian Cranston did, or like Sneaky Pete that he was in, which I know he produced as well. And you still, I just can't unsee him as Walter White now, and so it must—that must be a real frustration for them, though, as well, because I think the only exception of Aaron Paul is uh, BoJack Horseman, where he's, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, where he's Todd. That's the only role where I forget is Aaron Paul. But obviously, he's not visually in it, but that must be tough because they—I'm sure they'd want to like have another role where they, you know they're seen as the character, but it's almost like very hard to break free of that shackle of just being seen as the guy from breaking bad.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of, that really comes down to one, their ability to negotiate opportunities. Yeah. And to learn how to say no, even when money's involved. Yeah. And also surrounding themselves with good representatives, agents, managers, whatnot. I mean, mm-hmm. if your agent or manager is saying, take this role, it pays a lot of money. I know it's the same thing. First of all, Most of these guys, uh, and I know this isn't going to land me an agent by saying this, they're leeches. They want you to make as much money as possible so that they can get their 20% or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And when you see people falling into the same role again and again and again because they did it once really well, it's usually that. Um, So it's, it's really going to be up to people. To surround themselves with people who respect their talent and their wishes to diversify, but then also um, push them to. But it's it would true. Be great I, to have an agent yeah. who said, "You know, you already did this role. Why don't you try this? I think that we have a shot at branching out." Like, Do I don't we ever hear different. that story. An agent it's saying
1: tr- that. It's so true. Actually, I you know that's like another thing I never really put much thought to is the idea. You know, because. And I, I've heard a lot of, I've seen a lot of interviews of actors where they'll say, you know, as soon as they have a big role, that's all that comes in. Well, that's all the scripts that come across their desk. are just yeah. the same character, the same character. And I think one person who, like, there are examples, I think, of, like, people who've really made bold choices to step out of that. Like, I think a great one is um, uh, Robert Patterson, for example, where he, you know, did Twilight and or Harry Potter. And it's kind of like they're the same sort of area of role. And it's kind of, you would expect then that his whole career would kind of follow that kind of mainstream movie of that style. And then he I know was, that he...
0: He was in Harry Potter?
1: Yeah, he was in... Um, that was his first like kind of acting role. He was in one of the... Uh, it's one of the ones in the middle. I had no yeah, idea. He, do you know the bit uh, with the maze where there's like, I think it's the Goblet of Fire. And they're, they're basically, mm. they're chasing for this maze. And that, that one of the guys dies in the maze. That's him? Spoiler alert, that's him, yeah. Yeah, We're not do
0: spoilers. We watch (laughs) movies because we we like the art and craft. And also, if you haven't seen Harry Potter by now.
1: Yeah, it's it's like old news at this point. But he, I mean, he was, because he thought, oh, I'm going to get, you know, typecast. And he said, like, a lot of the scripts that came through were the same. And um, he basically took it into his own hands, apparently. He went to festivals and he basically just sought out filmmakers that he really liked. So he found like the Safdie brothers, who'd done one film in a festival, and he literally said, "You know, let's write a film, basically for him." So they basically wrote this movie. You know, um, what was it? Good time, great, great film, just around him.
0: Did you see Cosmopolis?
1: I didn't. I didn't. That's a good Cosmopolis. One. That to me, is I think like, I've heard the name, but I'm not I'm not yeah, sure what that that's he's in that.
0: And it's set over the course of one night for the most part. Um, that's, that's a movie he did. And, and that's what got me really respecting the hell out of him as an actor. Um, sure. Because Cosmopolis was the first book I read after I moved to New York City. It's a very New York book. Mm-hmm. And it was a book where I'm like, oh, I could totally see this in a movie with the right person.
1: And yeah. Then years and then they later, did
0: it. Years later, Many years later, Robert Pattinson's on the scene and he does it. And it's such a good movie.
1: I've like, got to watch. That. I'd really like to watch that yeah. actually,
0: and also read the book first because there's not a lot of books that are well interpreted as films. And I thought that they did such a beautiful job taking that book and making it into a movie. And
1: making it into a movie, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll check that out. I, I think, I think I did because I watched a, there was a podcast I watched and he was talking on it actually, and I th- I think that's I'm, I think he was saying that now that you say it, I think it comes to mind. I do remember him chatting about how that was the thing that initially kind of broke him away from those characters yeah. and and obviously like i know he's doing this batman now which is going to be very interesting to see how that how that is that could go one or two ways i feel like is that has
0: that resumed filming do you know
1: well he had apparently got covid like yeah three two twice or something i think i think they're filming it again um i know that they've got the penguin is is it Paul dano or dano dano i oh, think
0: oh dano yeah i don't well paul, paul donnell
1: yeah the one from prisoners and there will be blood and all that like he's a director as well now i think but it looks like an interesting cast i have i'm excited for that but there's so many superhero films that it's, it's kind of like
0: the cool thing about this though and and i think this is true for the joker as well is i appreciate that they're not just they don't just have a cinematic universe where you have to conform it with the Joker yeah. and with this, it looks like they can just be a little bit different, a little bit of a different take. Yeah.
1: So I'm excited yeah, yeah.
0: about that, actually.
1: I feel like DC, I, I feel like because of the Dark Knight, the DC kind of has that reputation of, oh, you can do something really cool and cinematically break, you know, new ground. But, you know, I, I, Joe, I Joker I thought was a really cool example, but I did also feel that Joker was kind of, King of Comedy Taxi Driver, <laughs> kind of just like paying respects to like the old, you know, seventy Scorsese.
0: Yeah, I saw that as well, and I 100 yeah. agree. And, and like Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy, I can't watch Joker a second time. All three of those films are one-time watches for me.
1: I, I see that with the King of Comedy. I think Taxi Driver for me, I can only watch it if like a long time has passed and I'm in a different frame of mind. I'm like, oh, I'd like to see it with this, but I know what you mean. It's one of those films where it's like. And Taxi Driver is quite heavy, especially like the bits with Jodie Foster. It's like, yeah. so like I need, it's like, that's, that's some heavy stuff. But yeah, no. That's, yeah, I agree. That's, I think, that's one thing I, do, I haven't really seen a good Marvel film that's really, you know, yeah. and like taking risks. Like that. So I think it's good DC are allowing, you know, this, you know, like joke and that to be made. Because it also introduces it to new audiences. Because I think people of younger generations, you know, there's, if they haven't seen a lot of that 70s film i mean i remember joker people my age was just like people were like going crazy about it and a lot of them hadn't hadn't sit you know they hadn't had the opportunity to see some of that you know that great cinema of the 70s and so it was kind of like an entry point for them and it had De Niro in as well which is kind of cool
0: yeah you know, 70s too like that's a whole other podcast 70s cinema and how kind of the vibe of America was represented in seven in the grit of 70s cinema yeah yeah and so many people today don't know that that's what they're honoring
1: yeah and I I saw a really great uh, clip about it um talking about how now because U.S. films are so aimed at international audiences and obviously they have to land in China and stuff like that and in most of Europe you it means that there aren't really like like defining American films anymore I feel like they kind of I mean there are but not on like the big, biggest scale. If like, I was thinking about this for British films, it's crazy cuz so many British directors are trying to make American movies. Like, we saw the other day I think it was Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman with Matthew McConaughey and like people like that and Hugh Grant. And it's crazy because it's such a sort of British film. And it's so rare to see that now cuz I feel like so so often everyone's trying to go for the biggest audience possible. They kind of lose identity. And there is, you're right. I mean, I watched those old films in the 70s. I think I really get a sense of like America from this, but now it, you know, certain films on a bigger scale, it feels like it's just trying to, you know, be as global and kind of internationally acceptable as possible.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring up Guy Ritchie because he's a great example of kind of this guy to me, at least from where I sit, creating these great movies with, with a very specific vibe nobody was doing Yeah, yeah. I mean one of my f- the first movie I ever waited up all night f- to see the first screening for was Snatch when that came out I was in film school in Vancouver I waited outside the movie theater for the first showing that morning and people thought I was crazy because there was no lines for it but I'm like this movie looks like one of the most original things I've ever seen in my life I have to see this first and then after he started getting these directing gigs it seems like that's what happened to the film industry so I'm paralleling it with the 70s because the 70s were these auteurs, these American auteurs that were creating movies on a relatively low budgets, they were very unique, they were very personal, they were very much showing what America felt like at that time uh, from these, these gritty cop movies like The French Connection Yeah, yeah. Um, Or in the same guy ended up doing The Exorcist, right? Mm -hmm. There's a vibe to those movies. And then once we transition into the 80s and things get cleaner and polished, and then by the end of the 80s, it's super colorful. And then in the early 90s, it's not only colorful, but all the movie scores are super happy. And yeah. Oh, you know. And it's just that's to me like there's a parallel between that. And what happens when you get all these directing offers? You just transition away from.
1: Sort well, of we that do.
0: More, like, there's nothing Guy Ritchie's doing now that I feel like has that same auteur feel. Like, have you the, seen like, the movie? The like Gentleman movies. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think Jan, Jan might have seen that. Because I Snatch, felt like. Netflix, yeah, it's
1: more. Yeah. Because Snatch, I felt like, because I agree. I mean, yeah, Snatch, but then he sort of did Sherlock Holmes films, which felt a bit more. Yeah. And then. But then the thing is, so I kind of lost a bit of interest. And then I saw The Gentleman. And for me personally, it really clicked. and had everything Snatch had. And I actually kind oh, of yeah? prefer it, which is saying something, because I really yeah. enjoyed Snatch. Well, but I'll, I was like, I'll well, definitely
0: check it out. Because once, think, once yeah. somebody looks like that they're conforming, they fall off my radar. But since you're recommending it, I'll check it out.
1: It is completely different than anything <laughs> else that came out that year. I'll say that. And it's very... Bold again, like it's like his early stuff where it's completely unique, and it's also yeah. it's incredibly well represents kind of like British culture, which is something you don't really like. To say in British films, they always seem to be kind of geared at an American audience as well. And I feel like, I mean, it's the same. I saw a really interesting thing about with Tarantino actually on on a podcast and like Joe Rogan or something talking about how he felt that the eighties. Kind of became this time where films are all about self improvement, of like um, <laughs> working on yourself, and it's like all the films are about a guy who starts off bad, becomes good in a way, right. and then apparently he said that he thinks nowadays it's about a char- you know, a character. There's almost this energy of culturally of like, you know, they something bad with, like they're bad, but let's it's all society's fault. And instead of it being self improvement, it's all about trying to improve society. But in in some cases, not in the best productive ways. But
0: I would agree with that. You said you heard that on Joe.
1: Yeah, Joe Rogan. He did yeah. really good. Uh, I actually, I agree with
0: him on a lot of things. But I one hundred percent agree with that because it's sort of ref- the film industry in general has sort of reflected the vibe and ideals of society yeah, yeah. and whatever specific era. So if you look at films from the fifties, they look like ads from the fifties, like yeah, polished yeah. and the, there's always the wife at home working in the kitchen. And yeah. then in the sixties that started to change the seventies. So that makes perfect sense. That's why like every fucking eighties movie has a scene in a sports club or a gym or something. Self-improvement.
1: Yeah. So like know? getting, you know, getting better. And then I feel like, I feel like, and I think they said the kind of to the effect, and again, this is kind of loosely quoting, but it was to the effect of like now it's kind of, it represents this, you know, throw all your problems on society because it's society's fault and don't have any <laughs> self-improvement because you're perfect with all your flaws. And in some cases, good advice, in other cases, it can be counterproductive perhaps. But it's, in, it's interesting how, it, you know, art can reflect the time it's made in. That's what I've always found. So one of the incredible things is you kind of, you know, whether it be painting a song or anything it kind of naturally takes on you know parts of the world at that time um but no it's i i i I really know what you mean about you know everything becoming more polished kind of moving into the 80s i feel like in a way i feel like film lost its personality in a way it became more group almost like a group of like a board of directors' ideas, as opposed mm-hmm. to an individual artist. I, th- I think maybe the '90s. I think it's funny because music was the same. So I think maybe it's informed by a culture. But I think in the in the '80s, you kind of. I feel like in music in the '60s and '70s was like film. You kind of had it really kind of you know, risky and raw and, like, really diving into stuff. And then in the 80s, it kind of gets a bit clean and polished. And then in the 90s, you know, you have grunge, and at the same time you have Tarantino coming out of Reservoir Dogs and all this, and it kind of... Yeah. And obviously, the early 2000s, there were some great films, you know, like No Country for Old Men, There'll Be Blood. Well, in, kind of in,
0: you know, it's interesting, too, because uh, you got me thinking about the the 80s is basically the Reagan era. And when Reagan got elected... There was a bit of a Baptist revival happening in the United mm-hmm. States where it, it really heavily informed parental decisions, mm-hmm. uh, what the parents made acceptable for their kids to digest. Yeah, so yeah. if they wanted them to keep going to the theaters, gritty cop movies, horror movies where kids, little girls are telling you that your mother sucks cocks in hell those aren't going to fly in a, no. a, a Reagan Baptist revival era uh, what's going to fly are silly movies where, where uh, I, the ideals that are more likely to be adopted by people like that will be accepted and then oh sure you want to take your girl to go see a movie sure you can go because sure, all the yeah. movies out there are now safe they, they weren't safe in the 70s but they're safe now
1: I think one of the one of the good things that I really enjoyed coming out of like when I look well say I say coming out I was obviously didn't experience it firsthand, but looking back at kind of eighties cinema I really always loved and the film that really inspired me as a kid was Back to the Future and that series. But the thing that was interesting is I watched an interview with um the guy who played Marty's dad. I think his name is is like Christopher I've forgotten his name.
0: Chris uh he was only in the first one. He got fired. Yeah. Uh, I forget his name because he got fired. He's not as big yeah. as he could have been. But yeah, he's, I know who you're talking about. And he talks he, like this. Yeah, that's the one. It, it,
1: it, it, I, he did this podcast and it's so, you know, I, th- I find it really cool because he, he basically was really kind of, he really cared about the art. And apparently what happened was he had a lot of problem with the end of the film being about commercial success. He said the reward should be his family and you know the, the connection he said he hated the idea that at the end Marty got this truck yeah. you know it's kind of like oh he's got the you know he's got the product placement at the end it's great he's got the credit card he's rich suddenly well, they, they um,
0: fixed that they fixed that though Did you? they fix that at the end at the end the other, the other one
1: although apparently the original script this is what according to him in the second film they wanted it to be that Doc and Marty both got the you know, the sports magazine to deliberately go and make money. And he said, cause he started off in talks about the second film and he basically, apparently it had an ending, which was really commercially led. And so they kind of had this thing of, um, where he really argued with the writers saying this. And in the end, obviously they changed it and they, they wrote it. So it wasn't, and obviously it ends up that Biff takes it and all this, but apparently originally the idea was that Marty and Doc deliberately said, Oh, we can make money out of this and kind of <laughs> go back or something. Crazy, which is, but basically that was a famous uh, lawsuit because they, they, they wouldn't agree to the rate his manager wanted, and they had he had loads of arguments about how the script was going to go. Mm-hmm. So obviously they fired him, and they used the cast of his head and screen tests on, like they put it on another actor, obviously. And that's actually been that's interesting because that lawsuit is going to come into play with some of this deep fake stuff that's going to start happening. Where it's kind of okay. like how can you copyright your face kind of thing, which is kind of weird to think about, but it's. To, I think it's going to become a real reality because, you know, you could just put Brad Pitt in your film, for example, with a yeah. CGI, with a deep fake. And it's like, you know, does he have the right to his face? Well, of course he does. But like, you know, that's a really interesting area.
0: Yeah, I, I think the legislation, there's going to be definitely some new legislation that's going to have to protect, especially in the era of people being like accused of things, right? Yeah, and the, the moment like cancel you're accused, culture. it's hard to crawl your way back whether you're innocent or not. Yeah, yeah. And So you could make a video of somebody who's a perfectly nice person doing a heinous thing and have it look so believable. And you know you can make those things look believable. Uh, we're going to have to introduce legislation that is so brutal to anybody who would do something like that that it just shuts the hole technology down because i do yeah. think deep fakes are the worst technology to be invented
1: it's scary i mean we actually i got hired with a friend by a very i won't name but a very one of the biggest uk sports provider to do a, a basically a, a treatment for a uk commercial for a big sporting event and they want to use deep fakes mm-hmm. i'd like to kind of you know, on various, you know, I can't, obviously, without going into detail, but they, we we had to learn how to use it. And, like, I sort of started, like, experimenting with it. And I was like, this is, like, like this is free open source software. Anyone can download it. This is, like, this has a real danger, you know? I mean, and, you, could, uh,
0: you could use that software, too. And I'm not going to, I'm not doing this to give anybody ideas. I'm doing this so that we could put warning bells up you could start a war you could get yeah. people murdered you could break up families you could end people's careers it's too powerful of a technology given that we live in a culture where people don't research whether something's real or not before acting on information or disinformation yeah.
1: and it's dangerous i mean <sighs> they did a they did a voice deep fake this was this really tripped me out where you know um basically they got a uh, a series of public figures i think joe rogan people like jordan peterson people like this and they basically they took a, they made they they took hours of like lectures or podcasts and they were able to clone the voice and type and it was a free website and you could go in let's say and i think it was you go on like joe rogan or jordan peterson type in anything you wanted press a button and it That's used it. the cloud and it said it sounded and people started uploading to youtube you know joe rogan says this or so and so and you think when that becomes just a step better to indistinguishable like how will we know what is real at all in the digital world it's like is there will there be a way
0: it's and that's that's why we need legislation and and we need to make doing stuff like that the punishment to be so brutal that people will think twice because with all the political divisions i mean i don't know how it is there but here um we're really struggling not to have a civil outbreak and it's just like you know people are going to use that shit to try and, and, and swing elections
1: Yeah. It's, just going definitely. To, it's
0: going to happen and the only thing that's going to keep people from considering it seriously is if there's a really bad repercussion for them personally
1: i agree and i i feel like there will also be almost like cryptocurrency or nfts i feel like what's going to happen is there'll be some way of validating um with like blockchain technology yes. what's genuine so unless it is uh-huh. everyone assumes it's rubbish so like if it comes out of like a real trailer it has some kind of you know like the way that obviously they're selling art is like nfts now where it's you it, it somehow it confirms that that's the original copy i feel like they'll have to do that so if it's like a trailer comes out for a film unless it's the one that's actually you know genuine you know, and is that original trailer that people will just have to start assuming that it's it could yeah. be manipulated?
0: Yeah, and I, I think that we certainly have talent in Silicon Valley who can write the algorithms to get us started on that. But then also, and this is a very simple solution: check mm-hmm. marks. So right now, there's a debate going on on Twitter because Danny DeVito, he. Put out a tweet saying that he was in favor of Nabisco workers forming a union. Well, Nabisco advertises on Twitter, and Twitter didn't like that tweet, so they removed his, Danny DeVito's verification status. So he no longer had a check mark. Oh, and so so Twitter's using the check mark or the verified user as a weapon and what needs to happen is everybody you and me who uh, are nowhere near at the status of Danny DeVito when it comes to followers have to be checkmarked they mm-hmm. have to know that what is being put out there is actually coming from us yeah and if and it's, it's not that's the stuff that the algorithm should be filtering out of our feeds not our own friends comments uh, yeah, the I agree, Danny I agree DeVito. With that. that isn't Danny DeVito for real. Instead, they're using verification as a weapon.
1: It's and true, it's and you super know, weird. Yeah. and Twitter especially. I mean, I know that there's many stories of them sort of removing stuff, or you know, oh, oh, I don't agree with that, so I'm going to take that down. Obviously, in some cases, if it's false information that could be harmful, but also you you ask yourself, where's that line drawn? You know, who draws that line between what gets removed and what stays up?
0: And that's the um, interesting era we're living in. And that's going to, uh, and, and I, I think that's going to come through. If we're not seeing it already, we're going to see it in retrospect. A lot of our art is going to reflect that negotiation because that's yeah. the toughest question we're dealing with right now.
1: And even with, even with art, I feel like it's like, where do we, where can you draw the line between artistic expression and having to conform out of fear of overstepping a mark somewhere. And, Actually, you
0: know. yeah, I dealt with that question uh, back in 2008 uh, when I was building this... This I was kind of a building an asshole persona for YouTube <laughs> yeah. where I would rant about shit that didn't matter and I would say things that were just politically divisive, not because I believed them but because it was part of what I think this character would do. And people couldn't tell the difference so it was just like with yeah and it's just like we honestly like in the in the age of different we're, we we're in the age of information and we're at risk of being in the age of disinformation and so we got to yeah. figure out how to i don't know how to deal with all this how to negotiate all this and
1: and it's, it's tough as well. Cause I feel like social media has kind of turned everyone into their own PR person in a way. Cause it's kind of like, because we now have ended up in this place where everything you do, there's permanent record of it, you know, it's always there. And obviously we're, we're living in this cancel culture where if, and obviously there are instances where if someone is actively doing stuff that's, you know, causing harm to other people, then that's something where people need to decide, you know, how, how that person you know fits into a society. But the the what troubles me sometimes is if someone has done, you know, made a mistake in their past online but then have completely gone down a different path in life and completely, you know, how accountable can they be and also how much does that reflect the art they do um which is a really I know it's that, a hot topic as well but it's
0: yeah know, i think that if they've gone down and and obviously we're not going to solve it here but no. I I think that if they've proven that they've gone down a different path in life for what it doesn't matter what they tweeted 10 years ago or whatever, but like, yeah. like we live in a vicious society where everybody's trying to take down one another. And I don't know. I,
1: it's like that. It goes back to the kind of eighties self-improvement yeah. and the now it's like blame everything and everyone because, you know, yeah it's a crazy and it's kind of like this mob mentality sometimes, whereas you see crazy stuff because obviously there are some cases where you see stuff and you think, okay, that, you know, that's, you can, that's justifiable. But there's some stories I've read where you have, you know, someone who in their teenage years made a very poor taste joke or something. And then in their sort of like thirties now, their art is suddenly being pulled off a platform or being, you know, discredited purely on the basis of, and you think it's, it's, it's like, it's it's kind of gone in a very strange way where it's like I say everyone's almost their their own PR person where it's like you have to everything you say you have to edit to make sure that it's coming across as if it's part of some machine which is really it's a strange responsibility to give to everyone yeah. yeah and I don't know what that is going to lead to
0: and I can tell you if there was social media when I was a teenager I would have been shut down over and over and over again, people yeah. say stupid stuff when they're young, so hopefully we can find find our way out of this era in that regard I'm hoping so
1: yeah, no, you know I think it with every era you kind of get this thing where you take you know as the next you know phase comes along, you take what worked and you abandon what didn't and I think that's kind of the when you take take a step back and look at the context you kind of see okay well there's always this progression where you know, you, 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 we're always testing. How far can we go? How far, you know? And then you kind of hopefully figure it out. But I, I do have this feeling that we're about to enter. And I may be completely wrong, but I get the feeling that we're about to enter into an era of, like the seventies and the nineties again, where everything has been in the early two thousands, sort of up to sort of now, has been so kind of robotic that I think there's going to be a bit of a backlash, and suddenly art is going to, you know, come back into the the view a bit more. And I feel like it's already starting to happen. Like even like Joker kind of represents where like a big corporatized movie franchise does something artistic and it's hugely successful. And I think I just feel like it's, you know, that that would be great. I think if there was another era of just personality again. Yeah. Um, I think
0: that's a good, that's a good, I think, button for this podcast to end it on because it brings us full circle at mm-hmm. a little over two hours that's how long we've been going and it also ties in with everything we've been saying the growth of the artist the growth of civilization taking what works into the next era
1: yeah you know it's probably- and art and commerce fractals uh, yeah, i like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's kind of no no it's
0: a fractalization to- it's a topic that's been fractalized for your sake listeners
1: <laughs> yeah no that was really not you know it's was really I feel like that sort of went in a very interesting direction yeah
0: no this is a great talk man
1: yeah likewise
0: Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.